Good morning, church family. Uh, I invite you to turn open in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and we'll be continuing our journey through the book of Genesis. Uh, and I wanted to give you a quick update on my health. Uh, I just recently had a scan this past week, and no change from the previous two scans, so that's a blessing and a, and a praise. Thank you. Um, so, uh, my next scan is in June, so that's coming up on a full year since my surgery, and so God is good. And uh, thank you for all of your prayers and your love for us uh, as we work, walk this road together. Um, I want to uh, mention to you also that uh, three weeks ago we began this study and we looked at the question, creation or evolution? And we found out that the Word of God teaches that God did in fact create the heavens and the earth in six literal 24-hour days. Secondly, we looked at, um, in His image, or in ours. And we found that we are all created in the image of Almighty God. Therefore, we are to be representatives of Him. We are to reflect His glory. We are to reproduce and we are to rule over His creation. And then last week we looked at um, the, the third covenant or cohabitation. And the idea here is that we looked at Genesis 2 and we found God instituting uh, marriage as a covenant relationship, and uh, we talked through that. Well, today we're going to be answering the question, God's truth or my truth? And it's interesting because this is a very important discussion, dialogue within our culture today. How many of you, by raising your hands, have ever heard somebody utter the words, well, that's not my truth, my truth is... Have you ever heard that? Okay, and so it's, it's good to hear that because I, I feel like this is becoming more and more of reality within our culture. More and more people are claiming uh, to have their truth. Now, I looked it up in the Urban Dictionary, and of course we know that's true, um, but the Urban Dictionary defines my truth as a non-negotiable personal opinion. In other words, I can have any opinion I choose to have, and you can't argue with it. You can't choose to call me out. This is my truth, therefore it's non-negotiable. And yet we live in a culture where our entire judicial system is based off of a very different phrase. When a witness takes the stand, they ask him to or her to Raise the right hand and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the whole truth, so help me God. And so I find it interesting that we have this conflict or this contradiction within culture. And so today we're going to look at what God's Word has to say. Another note I'll share with you about two-thirds of the way through my message today, we're going to be observing the Lord's Supper. And many people ask me, why do we do the Lord's Supper on certain Sundays? We try to do it once a month, but I choose it based on the Scripture. And today we're going to find out why the blood of Christ really does cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, as we begin this particular passage, I want to also say that if, in fact, you have any questions... Please, I haven't seen any this week, so apparently I'm answering the questions as we go. But uh, you can text this number or you can email that email address with your questions. 
And so now I want to walk through this next um, uh, recap of Genesis 2. Last week we talked about Adam's job being tending and working the garden. That was his job that God had given him to do. That the consequences of disobedience would be death, not only spiritual death, but also eventual physical death. Uh, and then Adam was recognizing the fact that he did not have a mate. He did not have someone like him. And that's why God asked him to name the animals. And then, of course, that God's uh, forming a wife from Adam's side is, in fact, pointing us to the cross where Christ himself uh, gave birth by his death to the church of Jesus Christ. And then finally, we see that all of that points to the fact that marriage is a covenant. And so this morning, I want us to see that there are five parts to Genesis 3, or five elements. Uh, and you have your sermon notes in front of you. You can fill them in now, and then we'll, we'll fill in the gaps as we go. But the five elements of the fall story, most of us in this room have read many times Genesis 3, and so I'm going to hit on some of the areas that maybe you've never noticed before. But it's really broken up into these five parts. First, there's the deception. Second, there's the disobedience. Third, there's the deflection. Fourth, there's the discipline. And then finally, there is the death substitution. And so we see that this particular passage really does hit on all five of those elements. And so I'm going to walk them through with us as we walk through this narrative. And I want to say this up front. A lot of people who are skeptical would look at this and see it as a story or as some allegory, that it's teaching maybe a spiritual lesson, but that it really was not an actual event. Well, I would submit to you this morning that the New Testament authors who refer back to this event, as Adam read this morning, do not see it as allegory. They see it as an actual historical event that actually happened. And so as we go into Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1, let me read a few verses and I'll say a few words about them. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Well, let's pause there. This is really the deception part of the fall. And we first have to ask, ask the question, who is this serpent? It says that the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals, so it's part of the animal kingdom that God created on day six. And this serpent then comes up to Eve. And we see that the answer for who the serpent is, is revealed to us by Scripture. If you go all the way to the end of the book, to the book of Revelation, you'll see in chapter 12 and in chapter 20, that ancient serpent is referred to as the devil, as Satan. 
So we see this wild animal that has been infiltrated by the satanic spirit of Satan, that Satan himself is a spirit being, and he is utilizing this serpent, a crafty animal, in order to deceive Eve, in order to tempt mankind to doubt God's word. So Satan is this high-ranking angel that, as we talked about last week, he fell sometime between Genesis 1.31, when God looked at everything that he had created, and Satan is, of course, a created being, that, in fact, God looked at everything he saw and that he had created, and he said it was very good. Well, certainly Satan could not have fallen before that. And so somewhere in chapter 2, we see that Satan fell. And of course, last week I alluded to the fact that maybe it's because God has given humankind such a tremendous privilege and responsibility for ruling over all of his creation. Perhaps Satan became jealous. Perhaps Satan became prideful and felt like he should have a greater responsibility, that he's no longer the big kid on the block and that somehow these embodied spirits, these humans, have come in and taken over his rule and reign. And so we see here that somewhere in the mix, Satan fell. And so now his, his intention now is to take God's higher, highest order of creation, humankind, and cause them also to fall. And so we see that he is identified as Satan. He has many names in the New Testament, the prince of this world, the god of this age, the prince and the power of the air, our spiritual enemy. In Ephesians chapter 6, it talks about you and I putting on our armor, the full armor of God each and every day. Why? Because the enemy is, of course, Satan, that he has certain schemes that he uses on us and he used on Eve. And then finally, that he is a roaring lion. Uh, prowling around to seek and to devour his enemies. And so we see that this is Satan who is the serpent. And then we see that in fact Satan uses some schemes. He uses doubt, he uses deception, and he uses desire in this particular narrative. Look at what it says here in verse uh, uh, 1. He says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? First of all, the, he actually uh, adds to God's prohibition. God didn't say you can't eat from any tree. In fact, God told Adam that he is free to eat of all the trees in the garden, just not this one, the knowledge of good and evil tree. And so he changes the game automatically. Do you see how sly that was? Second of all, we see that he uses doubt. You know what Satan's doing right now? He uses doubt in our generation. He causes you to doubt the veracity and truthfulness of God's Word. He asks for you to doubt your own salvation. How many of you have ever doubted whether or not you were saved? The devil's knocking on the door of your heart trying to tell you how to, that you're not good enough for God. Do you realize the devil keeps a lot of people from coming to Christ because they, they actually have it in their mind that God can't save them or that God won't save them? No, the devil uses doubt all through our lives. So my question is, are you relying on that 
evil voice or are you relying on the very spirit of Almighty God to affirm that you are in the grasp of Jesus Christ and no one can pluck you out of his hand. Praise God. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And so he uses doubt. But then secondly, look at what the woman says here. And of course, this is Eve, but it refers to her as the woman. She says to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, it's interesting. How many of you noticed that Eve added an element to the prohibition from God? See, Adam was the one that God gave the prohibition to. It was Adam that God had spoken to and said, you must, you are free to eat of any tree in the garden, but you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you will certainly die. But it must have been that Adam, passing on the prohibition to Eve, either he added this element, don't even touch it, or Eve herself produced that same prohibition or that additional prohibition on herself. But she says, you cannot touch it. That's not what God said. As far as God's concerned, they could have climbed all over it. Just don't eat it. This is a very important truth that somehow either Adam or Eve or both have just added to God's commands. Something that we should never do in the church of Jesus Christ. We should never add to this book. In fact, there's a prohibition in Revelation, at the very end of Revelation, that you are not to add to this book or take away from this book. This is God's Word. It is complete and sufficient of itself. And so we see here that Eve herself is now adding to this. But it's interesting. She does state that God told them not to eat of this knowledge of the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But then the devil goes right from doubt to deception. He lies to her. Look at what he says in verse 4. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, you will, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You understand we live in a culture where everybody wants to be their own God. You want to be in control. You want to be in charge. You want to be the captain of your ship. And when you do that, you place yourself on the throne of life and you take God off of his rightful throne and you set him to the side. It's almost as if sometimes what we're doing, just like Eve here, is we utilize God for what we need him for and only then. But you see, understand that God is the one who gave the prohibition. And it is not that she would become like a god. It really is that she herself would now know what evil is. And we'll find out what happens as they go into this mode of understanding, oh my gosh, now I know both good and evil. You know, it's interesting that evil is the absence of good. It's, it's, it's kind of like this. Ignorance is bliss. In many ways, there's truth in that statement. The idea behind it is that in today's society, think about it. The people who created social media platforms, I don't care if it's Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or any of these others, TikTok, most of those people who created those platforms 
had good intentions and they saw the good that could come from being able to connect to people online without having to physically be there. This is a good thing. Technology can be very good. But what happened? It's now becoming utilized for negative, for making people feel depressed about their status among their peer groups. The guy who created the like button for Facebook did not see this coming. That when somebody actually posts something and they don't get enough likes, it actually has a negative impact on their self-worth. It's true, it's happening right now. And let's face it, I just talked about social media. It's been around for a dozen years. Think about, think about what is coming with AI. Artificial intelligence. There's some good that can come from that technology, but there is also evil that can come from it. And I think that's what's happening here. Adam and Eve were in this eternal, this Edenic state of bliss. They had no idea about the evils that could come from the lack of good. No, I see here that there was deception. But then secondly, there was disobedience. It says in uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, these words, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. And so we see here that Eve fell victim to this threefold way of the world. Notice what it says here in verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, and also pleasing to the eye, lust of the eyes, and desirable for gaining wisdom, the pride of life. You see, Eve fell because of these threefold, this threefold element of the sin state of our world. Now let's contrast Eve with Jesus. Jesus, of course, was led by the Holy Spirit at the beginning of his ministry into the desert to be tempted of the devil. And the same temptation that John alludes to in 1 John 2.16, the same temptation that Satan gave to Eve, he now comes to Jesus. And he says, hey, I'm going to appeal to your lust of the flesh. You're, you're starving. You haven't eaten for 40 days. Turn these stones into bread. And Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He quoted scripture from Deuteronomy. Secondly, the devil tells him, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world, lust of the eyes. And Jesus says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And then finally, number three, throw yourself down and God will save you. And Jesus says, hey, listen, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. And guess what? I will worship God and serve him only. Jesus used scripture to refute temptation. So my question for us is this morning is this, how do we resist temptation? 
How many of you have been tempted in this last week to do something you know you shouldn't do? Or to think something you know you should not think? Or to say something you know you should not say? All of us are like Eve. We're susceptible to it. But here's the beauty of it is that Jesus Christ himself was tempted at all points and yet remained sinless. It says in Hebrews that uh, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So when you're being tempted, who do you go to for help? Jesus. Cry out to Jesus. Secondly, it says that each person is tempted. See, God does not tempt, nor can he be tempted. But it says each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And so we see in James chapter 1 that, in fact, that's what happens. We allow our own evil desires to bring us into a state of sin. But here's a promise from Paul to the Corinthian church. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Friends, I know for a fact that I have fallen myself into temptation. I have succumbed to the tempting schemes of the devil. None of us is immune from temptation, but all of us have at our disposal a heavenly Father and a Son Savior who wants to help us through. And so let's praise God for His protection and His way out. Eve, of course, had a choice. She saw that this fruit was good. We don't know if it was an apple. People say it's an apple. We don't know. It just says it was a fruit. And then it says that she took it and ate it. And then here's the kicker. She handed it to her husband who was with her. Adam was standing right there the whole time. I have no idea what he was doing. I have no idea what he was thinking. But surely he should have been the one to step in and say, time out. I find it fascinating that it is Adam who is blamed. The shoulder of responsibility for the fall of humankind is on Adam. Why? Because God gave him the prohibition. And it was his job to protect his wife from the wiles of the devil. And so Eve gave some to Adam, and what does he do? Instead of throwing it down and saying, you should not have done that, he's like, okay, well, if we're going to go down, let's go down together. No. No, that's not what should have happened. You see, sin always, always, always includes cover-ups. Because look at what it says. Then, verse, verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they f- sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, this week I told my staff that I was going to wear fig leaves in here today just to, 
you know, as a practical example of what it might look like. But lucky for you, and certainly lucky for me, there's no fig leaves on our fig tree out there. So the good news is I'm not doing this in June, okay? Isn't that great? But the beauty of it is, is that if you know anything about a fig tree, those leaves are not very comfortable. <laughs> Don't ask me how I know that, but I can just tell by looking at them they're not. But the fact is they're trying to cover it up. See, when, we're, when we are oftentimes confronted with the evil of our own lives, we try to cover up. We try to become the victim. And that's what happens. So it says here, look at, the, look at what happens in verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think God didn't know where Adam was? What's he asking then? Why would he ask that question? Where are you? Like we're playing hide and seek or something. No. He's asking him, where are you in relationship to me? I've given you a command. You have broken that command, and you have broken our relationship with each other. Adam, where are you? Can I ask you this morning, where are you in your relationship to God? You see, Adam here uh, is getting called out. Where are you? And then in verse 10, he says, He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? You see, so God calls him out. It's okay to call out a brother or sister in Christ to say, You've fallen. It's okay to do that. It's important because it brings us back into a right relationship. But here's what Adam does that we should not do. The man said, verse 12, The woman, <laughs> the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. That woman, not only did he blame the woman, but he blamed God for putting her in his life to begin with. Did you see that? Way to go, Adam. That's why I had Adam Russell read the story of Adam in Romans, just so he could remember who he is. <laughs> but it's interesting. We, we, we can't believe this, but this is so true. Sin not only has cover-ups, but sin also, when we are confronted, leads to deflection. Leads to deflection. To deflect something is to say, oh no, that's not me. That's not my fault. You can't criticize me. I'm the victim here. It was how I was raised. It was that person who said something nasty to me and I just retaliated. Or it's not my fault. Truly, it's not my fault. We can, we can go through the blame game here. Because Adam lays it out at the feet of Eve and then, of course, Eve in like manner says this. The woman said, the serpent deceived me. The devil made me do it. Let's be honest here this morning. Nowhere in the Bible does the devil make anybody do anything. As I just read from James, we let our own evil desires lead us down that path 
the devil just encourages us along. And so deflection is something that we have to be careful of in our lives. Don't become a victim in this life. Be a person that owns your sin and then walks rightly before God as you go. So as we get ready to prepare for the Lord's Supper, and I'm going to invite the deacons to come forward, and we will, do, we will observe the Lord's Supper, and then we'll come back to this text. But I want us to read this very next verse, because it is the gospel of all. It, verse 14, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. When we come to this part of the fall, when God brings discipline... To the serpent. As I just read, he says in verse 15, and this is our memory verse today, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. Now we know that this is referred to as the proto evangelium, that is, before the good news. It is the good news before the good news that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this particular verse of Scripture. But we have to ask the question, who is the offspring of the devil? Many times in his ministry, Jesus would chastise the Pharisees and the religious leaders who were rejecting him. And he would refer to them as a brood of vipers. You brood of vipers. And so it's really any human being who rejects the good news of Jesus Christ, that he is the offspring of the woman. All of Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament points to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he himself, when he came, he would call out the offspring of the devil. Notice what it also says there, he will crush your head, that Jesus Christ will crush the head of the serpent, of the devil. And he did that as he hung on the cross for you and for me. And as he was raised on the third day, victorious over sin and death. And so that is why the Savior himself instituted the Lord's Supper, so that we could observe the the suffering and the bloodshed of Christ, knowing that the hope of eternal life, our living hope, Jesus Christ, is here for all who would receive him. It says there that the devil would strike his heel. And we know that that is a reference to the cross. That Christ went to the cross and he did not have his life taken from him. No. He gave his life up for the sheep. He gave it of his own accord. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down and I take it up again. And so when Jesus died on that cross, he died willingly for you and for me. 
And the night before he died, he told his disciples, this bread is my body. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood. Take and drink all of it in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you that you, in the garden, had already, from eternity past, made a way for humankind to be rightly related again to you, even though we fall. Oh, Father, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that he came, that he lived the perfect life. He was the perfect Lamb of God. That he shed his blood on the cross, but he didn't stay there. He went into that tomb, and when he went into that tomb, he didn't stay there, but he was risen on the third day. Lord, we uh, agree, we acknowledge, we celebrate the victory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we all know that he is coming again, not as a suffering lamb, but as a roaring lion. Praise God. Hallelujah. What a Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we've just got a few more uh, things to come through here. This, the, the fourth step really is discipline. Our sin does bring discipline, and of course I've already read what God disciplined Satan, but then he goes on to the woman in verse 16, and he says, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. So when reproduction happens, which is the second purpose for which God created humankind, it will come with pain. The implication here is that that was not God's original intent. So all the ladies in the room who've ever given natural birth say, thanks, Eve, because that's what happens. It is a painful reminder for us that we live in a fallen world. You realize that when Adam and Eve fell, all of creation fell with them. It wasn't just humans, but everything we see around us, all the disease, all the destruction, all the disasters, all of the death, it all points to this point in the fall. And so we see that the devil has a curse, the woman has a curse, but then Adam, uh, the woman's uh, final curse is this, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. God instituted now the purpose of the relational hierarchy doesn't make man better than women. All it means is that this woman, this woman Eve, now she has a husband that he should lead her and she should follow. But they had not done it until then. And so Adam gets the curse. And what is his curse? Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. 
By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. And so Adam's curse, of course, is that he will work the food. He will rule over nature, but it will be hard. It will be by the sweat of the brow. He will be overwhelmed with exhaustion. He will get tired. The implication again is that one day when we work and keep the garden of heaven, that we will not sweat, we will not get tired, we will do so joyfully. That was the intent that God had for Adam and Eve, to work the garden and tend it. But of course, we know the curse is there. We see it. Farmers, you can ask farmers how difficult it is to produce a crop. And the idea here is that the curse has come not just to Adam and Eve, but to all of creation. And then we get to the final part, and this is really the most important part. We observed it with the Lord's Supper, but I want to close with it. It says here in verse 20, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. And the Lord God, listen to this, made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now to make Adam and Eve garments of skin to clothe them would require a sacrifice of an innocent animal. It would require blood to be shed. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so God here institutes the very first substitutionary atonement. Atonement means to cover, to cover the sin. The word cover, atonement is literally kippur, kippur. In in this passage here, it's like the blood covers over the sin of Adam and Eve. We see it in, of course, the covering of, that God gave to Moses when he was covered, his little basket was covered in tar and pitch. That word pitch is kippur. It was a covering. It was a protection. The same is true of Noah's ark. The ark was covered in tar and pitch. It was covered as a protection for Noah and his family from the flood. And so we see that these garments of skin reveal to us that Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. And that's why he came. But there was a banishment. He had to banish them. In verse 22, it says this, And God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove out the man, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Had God not banished them from the garden, they could have eaten from the tree of life and remained in their sinful, fallen state forever. So it was an act of mercy. It was an act of love that God banished them from the garden because His plan of redemption was already underway. And so we see the fall and we answer the question, God's truth or my truth? All of us 
have a decision every single day. Do I live under God's Word? Or do I live under my own Word? My way? Is it my truth that I live by? Or is it under God's truth? The only way to know how to live under God's truth is to read His truth. This is God's truth. Won't you submit to it today? And you, you and I, can live the victorious life in Christ that He has promised us. I have come to give them life and to give it in abundance. Let us pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this narrative in Genesis 3 to teach us how sin came into this world through one man. That disobedience, but that through one man's obedience, even Jesus Christ, who himself gave his life up as a ransom for all, that we might be rightly related to you. We might be reconciled. We might be redeemed. We might be ransomed. Father, we don't have what it takes to ransom ourselves, but we do through the blood of Jesus Christ. So Lord, as we think about this passage today, may we surrender to your truth. And we do this in the capable name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.